Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Roll Doll Retrospective, where we talk about every single adaptation based off of a Roll Doll book or short. I am Patricia. And my name is Aaron. So, yeah, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, we had just discussed about Roll Dolls the Witches, and um, we have officially completed every single Roll Doll adaptation, whether it be a theatrical film or a TV film. And I have to say, uh, even though that this was something a little bit different compared to when we did Picks Mix a Dream Machine, in which we would do it on a weekly basis, and we had a lot more films to cover, I think that this was a pretty interesting journey looking back at all these adaptations. Yeah, and uh, you know the fact that uh, Roll Doll has been basically uh, not really been like you know you usually have like Marvel like doing like all like uh, their style of films, and like uh, you have like you know Disney doing all their kind of thing. I mean, like uh, this uh, you know the Roll Doll property has been something that's basically been jumped from like studio to studio so everyone's kind of like had a go at trying to get this right you know yeah we went everything from warner brothers to uh paramount to disney even to smaller companies uh like tames television and the bbc and cosgrove hall cosgrove hall so yeah everybody has had their own uh, way of presenting all of these um, films, and some of them worked out and some of them didn't. And we're going to be discussing today on the top five best and top five worst of these adaptations. So I decided that because we did a monthly podcast and it wouldn't make much sense for us to post it on the week before we would do the final episode, I did it a few months before so that you guys can be able to catch up and listen to our discussions, watch the movies, and then put in your ranks. So as always, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the lowest and 10 being the highest, uh, you guys put in your personal rankings on each of these adaptations. Erin uh, and I have our average scores, and we have your average scores. I jotted it all down, and uh, we're going to get started. But I just have to say right before we do, it was really close. Like, in terms of what was going to be in the top two best and the top two worst, it was behind by one point even with number five in the best and in the worst it was off by one point but we'll get to that when we talk about the uh, uh honorable mentions and the participation winner so Aaron, are you ready to get started on the top five best and worst of these adaptations i have been so curious ever since the polls ended so yeah let's get it over with as usual, we always have to go over the top five worst. So once again, I just want to let you guys know that if you disagree with these rankings, well, if you uh, did not vote for it, then I don't know what to tell you. But you have to remember, uh, as mentioned earlier, this was really, really close. So here we go. Okay, so number five on the top five worst. Um, Aaron and I gave this an average score of five out of ten. And you guys gave it an average score of 5 out of 10. It is Roll Doll's Little Red Riding Hood. Wow, I think, uh, you know, I mean, it's um, if it's the one I'm thinking of, then, uh, yeah, I can kind of understand why it's kind of low on the list, because uh, not everybody's kind of aware of it, I think. Yeah. That's one thing I've noticed about. Yeah, Screen Rant recently posted up a list of you know, according to the person who wrote his personal opinion on what the best and the worst adaptations were. And they did not mention this adaptation at all. Like, they even mentioned Breaking Point. And yet they did not mention Roald Dahl's Little Red Riding Hood. And I can understand that because 
It's a 45-minute special from the BBC. It was only released once on the, the, the network, and it was released on VHS, and it didn't go anywhere else. And I know that some people do have fond memories of it. And I know it was based off of uh, a stage play that was written and directed by Donald Sturrock, who has been really close with the Dahl family with writing a lot of his books and archiving a lot of his letters and stuff like that. So I'm not saying anything bad about Donald Sturrock's writing and directing of this, but I can understand why for the people who have watched it, including us, we didn't really care too much about it. It was incredibly long and boring. Even though it's 45 minutes long, it feels even longer than that. Because the narrator, and I even stated this in the um, the Roald Dolls the Witches discussion, that I, I think that this narrator is the worst one that we've seen throughout this retrospective. He says absolutely nothing to carry out the story. And if he does, then it's long and drawn out and just dull and then it tries to throw in some really dark scary moments like the sows and the baby pigs are being put into the truck and it has absolutely nothing to do with the source material then it focuses on wolfie and then you have that 10 minute thing where he's trapped in the um, the storm and that has nothing to do with anything they really try to pad this movie but didn't do it smart like revolting rhymes did so yeah, I can kind of see why this was not regarded very well by our listeners or even by ourselves. And also, five out of ten is basically where this movie belongs. Isn't it just a load of average when you really think yeah. about it? Yeah, I mean, there's some good things about it. Like, Julie Walters does do a good job as playing as Little Red Riding Hood, even though she's only in it for, like, a brief minute. And then Danny DeVito as Wolfie, which was the first adaptation based off of a Roald Dahl book he would portray as. So... He does a pretty decent job as well, and the production is not bad considering that they had to work with a TV budget and they had to make it look like it came from outside. So, yeah, that's fine too, but everything else is just pretty mediocre. It definitely deserves its ranking. It's it's split way down the middle. It's not the best and it's not the worst. It's just downright forgettable, and I can understand why pretty much nobody remembers it when it comes to Roald Dahl adaptations. Yeah, I think it's the uh, second uh, appearance, I think, of uh, Danny DeVito in a Roald Dahl work, I believe. I think at this yeah, point. It, well, the, the first one, actually, because oh, okay. Matilda, wouldn't, Matilda wouldn't come out until a few months later. Yeah. Maybe he had some regret in his idea. You know what, maybe I'll remake Matilda and uh, try and redeem myself in the, in the Roald Dahl world. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But uh, overall, yeah, Roald Dahl's Little Red Riding Hood, if you want to see a proper presentation of Revolting Rhymes, don't watch this one. Just watch the BBC version of Revolting Rhymes. It's way better. Okay, coming in at number four in our uh, worst list. Uh, this was a shocker to me, but when looking more into it, I can kind of understand. So Aaron and I gave it a ranking of one out of 10, but you guys gave it a ranking of 4.5 out of 10, and that is four rooms. Jeez, like uh, that movie was insufferable to me. Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really surprised it's only on number four. I thought we were going to get to, like, number maybe number two or number one, and then we, like, we just go to town. But uh, no, apparently there some people find some... Uh, mind you, this is the thing, like, uh, I, some kind of debate whether we actually should have even counted this in the Roald Dahl retrospective in the first place, given, like, it's only one-fourth of the movie when you really think about it. Like, it's more of a Quentin yeah. Tarantino kind of thing. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. But here's the thing. You see, they credited Roald Dahl's name because Quentin Tarantino did adapt the short based off of his work. So, yes, it counted. 
unfortunately. So let's go into the Tarantino portion and let's just leave the third, uh, the, you know, three fourths of the movie out of the way. So, yeah, like all the all the like all the weird boob dancing and like all the uh, you know the the stuff with the bellhop and like all the other. Uh, crazy stuff. Let, let's focus on the guy who was in Zorro and Spy Kids and uh, all his crazy family. Let's just focus on that. Well, actually, the crazy family is Robert Rodriguez one. The one with Tarantino and the one that the short is based off of is the one where the guy is betting on the car and he has to go on chopping the fingers. So we have to talk about that short. Oh, right. Okay, then. i tell you what, actually, now I cast my mind back, I actually remember saying I switched it off before I actually got to that shot because it was just so repre- it was just you know, so reprehensible how this movie was put together. So, yeah, um, so yeah. you never, so you never did see that part. And uh, here's the thing: my, it, my eyes were just it, bleeding. I couldn't. I just couldn't. You know. Like, yeah. So it, it has your typical stuff from Tarantino: lots of swearing, and there's lots of shots of feet in it because, of course, it is. I mean, next to Dan Schneider, Tarantino has like the biggest foot fetish in all of Hollywood. And then <laughs> you, yeah, I know. And, and it does kind of like get keep to the spirit in which, like, okay, so you have this guy and. Um, he's trying to bet off to somebody else saying, okay, you want to have the keys to this car? Okay, let's do it. And then it involves with like, you know, chopping off fingers. And so, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see that Tarantino doesn't even want to talk about this project. I mean, I can understand that maybe it has something to do with the fact that this was, you know, distributed by the Weinstein company. And another thing that is going to be mentioned here is that when you talk about like Tarantino's work around this time period, I mean, he was just finishing off Pulp Fiction. So his name was just getting up there in terms of popularity. He was only known for two things, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I guess Weinstein was like, hey, let's just take these up-and-comers who have a lot of potential and let's make an anthology comedy. And it was a massive failure. And yep. I, can see why, I can see why pretty much nobody talks about this movie. You know, well, like, uh, if they really wanted to, like, nail down shorts, I mean, like, they really should have, like, uh, stuck with the classics and, like, uh, you know, like, some of the, maybe, like, the, uh, you know, the classic shorts, like you saw in, like, the theaters and things like that. You know, actually, if I enough like uh, whilst i was uh, waiting for uh, one of our picks minis to actually uh, uh complete uh, i was actually just going through some like old looney tunes cartoons funnily enough and it's like you know what like uh, if uh, you know the timing on these uh com- the, co- the com- comedy is perfect and uh, you know just uh, just watching how you know all, all the stuff that's just going on and like all the commentary and stuff like that like uh, you know it's like uh, i would probably like sat them down and say you know you want to watch some like you know classic shorts of comedies before you kind of like venture off into like uh, you know trying to do this kind of stuff really like you know like what a waste of madonna you know mm-hmm. yeah there, there was a lot of heavy hitters in this movie and all of them just feel wasted and it's it's a shame that um you know people were able to like d- degrade themselves into a presentation like this and it's just oh man i mean i, I can see why even tarantino himself doesn't even want to talk about this project why why, why are we talking about it <laughs> Yeah, let's, yeah, exactly. Why are we talking about it? I mean, as a Roald Dahl adaptation, there's just, there's absolutely no reason why we should have talked about it in the first place. But because that Roald Dahl's name is in the credits and they actually do give credit that they were able to adapt the short base off of his work, that's why we had to talk about it. So as an adaptation, it doesn't even deserve any more of our discussion. So let's move on. Next, please. Next. Okay. So number three on our worst list, uh, we gave it an average score of five out of ten. Um, the uh, listeners gave it an average score 
of 4.4 out of 10. It is breaking point. Yeah. So um, this is the Turner uh, production, I believe, mm -hmm. and uh, well, production being the uh, you know the operating term. But uh, I mean, like, yeah, a lot of this was just boring. It really was. It's just like uh, you know, at one point I kind of cried out for like you know the uh, the the terrific performance of Tommy Wiseau in the room. Like you know, just uh, you just wanted something wacky just to kind of happen, just kind of make it all kind of like put together. But you know, like uh, I remember, like uh, they just constantly going back to this device of like you know, um, saying, "Oh, let's just uh, you know stick a you know electrode down his neck, down his throat, and just you know start torturing him in that way." And uh, you know, just it was uh, that was pretty much the only like you know threat that was in the movie at that point. And um, you know, they just uh, they just didn't uh, take any of uh, what was the original source material and uh, turn it into anything kind of eventful. Really, it was just kind of like this uh, soft movie that you, I think you probably would have ended up drifting off to sleep in. I think when you're watching TNT late at night, you know. Yeah, uh, everything about this film is an insult to 36 hours. They essentially got rid of the heart and the intensity of the original film. Gone are the sympathetic moments with Anna, and we can't root for her because instead of being a nurse who was Jewish and she was taken in by the Germans because she needed to survive, and instead we have somebody who's half German, half Jewish, and she just so happened to go alongside with Dr. Gerber, and then she has like this relationship with Pike, even though in the original there was no relationship to begin with, and it's even more awkward considering the fact that she looks exactly like his wife, and they're saying, oh, the wife is dead, but no, the wife is alive, and then he starts flirting with her, and then they start having that kissing scene and all that kind of stuff, and then you have Pike, who is... You know, there's no urgency with him because he already knows immediately that he's being duped. Well, in the original, sure, I mean, he's asking a whole bunch of questions. He's wondering what's going on. But then he starts putting two to two together. And then we start getting that confrontation where it leads up to something. And then the ending is a complete cop-out in which Anna dies, Gerber lives, and they're still continuing with the experiments. Well, in the original... Gerber dies, Anna lives, and they're able to escape, and it has this great climactic ending where it's filled to the brim with intensity and uh, suspense, and you just wonder about how they're going to escape. All of that is stripped away from this, um, this remake. And yes, I'm calling it a remake because... It was a remake to 36 Hours. It was a TV movie as opposed to being a theatrical version. All the other ones, such as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the BFG, and Roald Dolls the Witches are adaptations. But this is the only remake on the list, and it's really bad. Yeah, I just uh, there's no memorable moments in this movie. There just just wasn't like uh, the only thing I can remember was just like you know the uh, the Turner Home Entertainment kind of like logo kind of like etched in my eyes, kind of like saying, "Yep, I'm in for a sleep." You know? <laughs> yeah, everything about this movie was just so boring. The music was boring. The acting was boring. The sets were boring. Everything about it was just dull. I mean, even though it was in color compared to 36 Hours in which it was black and white, 36 Hours had a lot more vibrant personality and color than this movie could ever do. So... Yeah, every time that I see a review of this, they don't even review it. They just put it on a footnote saying it was a remake of 36 Hours. In fact, they sometimes even lump it together thinking it's the same movie. Which, okay, plot-wise it is, but 
presentation wise, it's not. Go watch it on YouTube and then watch 36 hours again and you'll see that it's a completely different film. Like it is night and day. And I am so glad we don't ever have to talk about this movie ever again. Yeah, it's so meh that even meh probably will be uh, insulted by it. I would probably yeah. imagine. Yeah. Okay. So number two on our worst list. And I said, and like I said this before, uh, this was really close. So Aaron and I gave it an average score of 2.5 out of 10. And you guys gave it an average score of 4.3 out of 10. And that was Roald Dahl's The Witches. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, um, oh, wait, wait, are we talking about the new one or the old one? The new one. The new one, yeah. So, I mean, as well, previous discussion, like, uh, everything about this movie, you know, apart from the ending, I think is wrong. I think in this regard, like, uh, it's the wrong setting, it's um, the wrong kind of actors, it's the wrong kind of graphics, it's the wrong kind of, like, setup. You know, just, it's uh, um, a lot of this, just, a lot of it feels like a video game as well, the way that it's shot and uh, the way that it sounds. Like, uh, also, it's about that as well, like, besides, like, the music that comes from that era, I can't even remember most of the soundtrack to this it's like you know, it's just kind of like generic oh something's uh, about to happen and like oh you know uh, oh be careful like uh, there's a uh, quiet moments where we have to be quiet and things like that just yeah just uh nothing for, for me just uh worked for this movie except i really wish we could take the um the 90s version of the witches and uh, basically take the ending of this one and kind of like just kind of more you know sold them together in some way you know mm -hmm. just yeah yeah and here's the thing like I could see that they were trying really hard to do a new version of this story, and I respect them for that, but they never really followed up on anything. Like, the fact that they were able to take it in um, 1960s Alabama, and they have an African-American cast, there's no subtlety, uh, there's no commentary on racism. They, they, they missed on Mark. And then there's also the fact that they decided to, um, you know, feature the story about, you know, Bruno and then Mary. They, did, they never expanded on Mary's backstory. And the backstory on the other characters are pretty limited to the point of it being non-existent. And the, the portrayal of Anne Hathaway was just way too over the top and hammy. I mean, sure, Angelica Houston was the same way, but at least she had a threatening side of her that made you feel scared. There's a reason why the 1990 adaptation will still reign supreme because, yes, that movie has a lot of flaws. There are some scenes that are not needed. There's uh, the, the kid actors are not very good. Um, and... Even, you know, we even complained about the music kind of just being inconsistent and all over the place. But there's a reason why a lot of people remember it. I mean, the special effects are amazing. And so, yeah, sure, there's some parts of it that are dated, but there's a lot of it that still holds up. And it just has a creepiness to it that the, that the, the newer version just kind of stripped away. So... I was really disappointed with this and I was hoping that maybe they can be able to, you know, pull off something really special with this. But unfortunately, it's just a matter of there was just too many cooks in the kitchen. I mean, you have, you know, uh, uh, Robert Zemeckis, who's nowadays pretty much known for just doing special effects as like the main crux of the story. And then story just comes in second and characters, who cares? You have Guillermo del Toro. You have Kenya Barris. You have um, Alfonso Cuaron. You have a lot of these Oscar-winning um, directors and, and uh, writers. And their ideas just feel like they just don't mix well together. Nope. It just really makes... 
it just really makes me sad that we will never get to see what Alfonso, um, that Guillermo del Toro's uh, pr pr um, depiction of what his tale on the witches would have been, because I'm sure that would have been way better than what we've gotten. Well, it's, it's, that's not what we got here, and unfortunately we've kind of just got this uh, unfortunate mess, really. And uh, so, um, and as well, as well, actually, one thing I actually forgot to mention, you know, the Grand High Witch in this movie is a terrible, is terrible at man management. Like, you know, she, she executes people who ask good questions, for God's sakes. Like, you know, like, uh, if anything, it's kind of, Prashazer is like, just uh, is a really stupid person who doesn't, isn't, I'm not surprised, you know, a grandma and a bunch of mice can foil her plans. Like, you know, uh, when you really look back and think about it, it's kind of like, you know what, she was not very good at executing anything. How on earth did she organize an entire global um, uh, movement of witches, when you really think about it? Yeah, and 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 I and I think that at some point that people will be actually putting two and two together, saying, "Hey, our kids are disappearing. What's going on?" And here's the thing that this movie fails at, while the BFG succeeds in. You see, in the BFG, a lot of these giants were gobbling up people and especially children, but there were orphans. With orphans, unfortunately, it's like you don't really think about them. But you know, Bruno comes from a highly rich family, a highly white British rich family. If he were to disappear, I'm sure that there will be a lot of news reports going, okay, there's this kid missing. We need to find him. And then maybe they'll, you know, have to gather Which the all grandma pointed out in the, in the, in the movie, which is the, uh, the, the plot's uh, invention to get them into the white hotel. You know, yeah. like, uh, oh, good, good. Yeah, a lot of this movie is wrong. I think we just admit that. Yeah, I, 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 it, it is wrong. And I, I mean, if they were to able to um, go all out with what they wanted to do, I, I, as I mentioned before, I think that there was just too many cooks in the kitchen. There was just too many ideas going in. And then we just gotten a product that just feels incredibly half-baked and with little to no payoff. And uh, other than the climax, there's nothing really redeemable about this. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, so number one on our top five worst. So Aaron and I gave it an average score of three out of 10, but you guys gave it an average score of 3.4 out of 10. It is Tom and Jerry, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, I think we can definitely say like there's no originality in this. I mean, like it's Tom and Jerry who we've known that's been a property for like you know a, a, a good century now, and uh, then um, also we have um, you know Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which has been from the you know from the sixties. So like uh, you know, it's just it's. Uh, um, there's nothing here that they basically just kind of like, you know, fuse the two together and I uh, think that is, there's going to be something, uh, you know, great to come out of this, but unfortunately there isn't, you know, the, uh, the animation is weird. I mean, I, I think we can definitely tell you about that. And, uh, also the, um, you know, the singing also as well, like, uh, you know, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, they all like, I think they really should have done what they did with Fantastic Mr. Fox, where they had everyone singing like in, in like, uh, you know, they should have like filmed all the voice acting like in, 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 you know, within scene and, uh, like had like, uh, you know, make it feel more vibrant, you know, in regards to like, uh, where it is like in Fantastic Mr. Fox, like, uh, it was uh, brilliant how they did like all the, uh, the sound work there and everything like that. And they should have done the same thing here in, uh, Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now, obviously, there's budgeting, obviously, to keep in mind. So maybe they probably didn't have the chance to do that. But uh, I mean, it just it just feels like a massive downgrade. I think uh, from everything else that we saw, you know, in the Roald Dahl retrospective. And so, Willy Tom and Jerry, William Walker and the Chocolate Factory is just uh, you know is uh, something that shouldn't have been put together, as far as I'm concerned. I cannot believe that this movie even exists. Like, why? 
does it, why is it here? Now, I took a look at the date of the release. It was supposed to, you know, 2017. I take it that maybe the reason why they wanted to release it was because they wanted to celebrate the original film's 45th anniversary because it came out in 1971. But then I guess maybe due to Gene Wilder passing away, maybe they thought, okay, we, we, now we have to make it as a tribute to Gene Wilder. And everything about the movie is just worse. Like, the animation is worse. The story integration is literally the same thing. The only difference is, is that you put Tom and Jerry in it. The Tom and Jerry uh, scenes are not funny. And they're just like are squeezed in at just awkward moments. And there's absolutely nothing. There's there's no reason why they even should even be there. The additional scenes that they added into this make no sense. Like trying to make Slugworth more into a villain when he wasn't in the original film. Adding Tuffy into the movie just adds nothing. Adding Spike into the movie adds nothing. And then there's like so many plot holes and questions. Like, okay, you have Spike and Slugworth. Um, you know, turning blue and then going small and big and they're fine. But then Violet and Mike TV, they're not fine. How does that work? The And then the animation. Oh, God, the animation is yeah. so bad. You know, Charlie at times look re looks really creepy. He really does. Yeah. He, like, he, lo he looks like he's uh, fantasizing about murdering his whole school, all his schoolmates. You know, like it's just, it's just this. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how how on earth can you make Charlie look fiendish? Like, uh, I mean, it's just it's a uh, it, it's a uh, it's criminal how they've like you know just slabbed all this together and uh, you know just uh, I mean obviously the droopy stuff was it was slightly amusing you know in that regard but uh, I mean in regards to everything else it's just it's uh, it's it's so so much of a chore to kind of get through that as well like and. Uh, you know, just some of that as well. Like, uh, you know, there was a scene where Tom and Jerry were like entertaining themselves on a street corner, like you know, trying to get some money for Char Charlie in order to get that, uh, you know, a Wonka bar. And I was just sitting there, like, you know what? That's basically what Tom and Jerry are at the minute. They're just on the street corner, basically entertaining. You know, uh, you know, all trying their best to entertain people, and just people's walking away, and going, oh, okay. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's what Tom and Jerry is at the moment. And, uh, you know, on top of that, as of this date, we've just basically been announced just a couple of weeks ago that uh, Tom and Jerry is going to have uh, another movie uh, coming yes, out, are. which is going to be a live, a live action movie. Well, quote unquote live action. But basically, it's going to be uh, them in a 3D environment and. Um, which is going to like, you know, they're basically their 3D characters like in a, in a real world like scenario. And, uh, you know, once again, we're off to another zany adventure in New York City, you know, and what, 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 a, what a novel concept. And, yeah. uh, and then we're going to be going through this hotel and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, uh, oh, good grief. Like, uh, I dread, you know, thinking what Tom and Jerry are going to do next. I mean, like, it's, uh, I don't think they're going to do anything in, you know, original with it. As far as I'm aware, you know, it would be interesting if they decided to do like what they did with uh, what did we watch me call um, uh, the Muppets, uh, you know, uh, Manhattan Madness. I think is it they uh, when they did uh, you know when everyone like uh, you know they couldn't basically put the show together and so they all went their separate ways and so then you know like the story of, like Tom and Jerry kind of like you know going out on their own and you know you know deciding what you know what they're going to do next and then eventually they end up getting getting back together you know maybe like at the very end of the movie and uh, so. I don't know, like, it would be interesting to see if they tried to do something like that. But, uh, I mean, um, yeah, I just think the Tom and Jerry franchise, I think, is uh, going to be in zombie mode, I think, for uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, good, good grief, I hate to think whatever, what else they're, else they're going to be, uh, um, you know, sticking Tom and Jerry into next. You know, if, yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, uh, very... this is getting the wrong attention. I think uh, Tom and Jerry, Willy Wonka. I think uh, the you know the studio bigwigs are thinking, oh, all the internet finds it you know hilarious, you know, for but so not realizing it's all for the wrong reasons. And then they think, you know what? Let's mix them with Tron, or let's mix them with uh, I don't know. Um, let's actually put them in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like even though that's already a thing, that's uh, you know kind of like you know a mixture between cartoons and you know uh, real life. So I mean, I I kind of think I dread to think what's coming next. For Tom and Jerry, uh, you know, regards know. to let alone Roll Doll. This is definitely a low point for Tom and Jerry. Like, this is probably the worst thing that they've ever been in. And I, I say this, and I know about the 1994 Tom and Jerry movie. It's even worse than that. Yeah. Because here's the thing you see, they literally copied Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and they did little to no changes to it other than add Tom and Jerry in it, and the Tom and Jerry stuff you can cut off, and you'll just have Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. They, there's literally no reason for them to be even in this movie, and they add nothing to the movie. I mean, this is like one of this is probably the laziest adaptation of a Roald Doll movie I've ever seen. I mean, give credit to um you know uh, breaking point and roll dolls the witches sure they failed but at least they did some things different compared to their original counterparts they failed on their own terms not on somebody else's terms exactly all right so yeah that is it for the top five worst so uh right before we go over to the top five best uh, let's go over the honorable mentions the ones who were stuck around the five to six range so uh, in order, we have 36 Hours, Danny the Champion of the World, uh, the 1990 version of The Witches, SEO Trot, the 2016 adaptation of the BFG, and Revolting Rhymes. And the winner for the Participation Award, who was very close, mind you, by one point, who was very close to being in the top five but fell short, is... Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who only got seven out of ten. Well, I mean, like, um, it's um, being the being in the middle of the participation award is not necessarily the best <laughs> the best place to be. Really, like, uh, you did do nothing to uh, charm. You did nothing to uh, you know to scorn. So, like, you're just there in the middle. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy, yeah, happy place to be. Yeah, there you go. Happy place to be, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So, I guess maybe the hatred for the movie has kind of died down to the point in which they're saying, huh. This movie isn't that bad. So, yeah, definitely middling of the road. So, sure. So, that's uh, that's it for the uh, honorable mention slash participation award. So, now let's go over the top five best. At number five of the top five best, Aaron and I gave it an average score of 8 out of 10. But you gave it an average score of 7.1 out of 10. It is the 1989 version of the BFG. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I I love this movie. This is my favorite, uh, you know, uh, Roald Dahl uh, thing because you know at the end of the day, it was um, he was really Roald Dahl himself actually gave um, you know uh, credit to this movie, and uh, it was uh, the one that he actually liked. Uh, you know, given the fact that he had such a, a bad taste left in his mouth by uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So uh, Cosgrove Hall, um, obviously, it was smelling blood in the water at the time because Disney wasn't doing so well. And, uh, you know, they thought, oh, hey, you know, we can uh, try and put this movie out together and uh, try and uh, see if we can uh, garner, uh, you know, an audience out of the fact that uh, there's a lot of people wandering around thinking that Disney isn't going to do anything here. And so they went with the BFG, which I think was a, a great way, great uh, foot first. And uh, it makes me wonder if, uh, you know, this had become even more successful than it had now. I mean, I wonder where Cosgrove Hall and even Thames Television would be today. 
you know and uh, yeah. so i think uh, you know it makes me wonder about um but unfortunately, obviously, we got the Disney re- Renaissance era, so you know, unfortunately, that never came to be. But uh, you know, I-, I would definitely urge everybody to check out uh, the uh, the 1989 version of BFG because uh, it's got um, you know uh, some of the- it's got some really classic uh, looking uh, animation. Uh, the music's great. Uh, the characters sound. David Frost does a really great job. Uh, in this, uh, portraying uh, the BFG in, in, in all of this as well, and so uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, and obviously there's some like really goofy moments which uh, you know is expected like in uh, something like this, but uh, you know I think uh, if you, if you look at it all and uh, see how you know uh, triumphantly British it is and uh, how triumphantly you know, uh, f- you know fantasy fa- fantastical it all is, you know I, I'd really urge everyone to check it out if you've not checked it out already. Had it not been for the success of the BFG and Roald Dahl giving his approval, we wouldn't have any of the other ta- adaptations that we have today. If this one didn't turn out to be a success, then he would have said absolutely no more adaptations. I mean, it would have been like um, you know, a very it would have been a situation in which when uh, with we only have um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and then we probably would have gotten Danny the Champion of the World and the BFG as our only adaptations because. He was just that frustrated with it. But because he loved the BFG so much, he was more than open to saying, hey, um, Lorimar, you're doing the witches? Okay, I'm more than happy to, to see the production of this because I was happy with the way that the BFG turned out, so I'm thinking that the witches will turn out the same way. Even though the ending didn't satisfy him, um, and you know, unfortunately due to his death, they were like, okay, well, let's continue on with more of these adaptations. So we wouldn't have you know, adaptations such as James and the Giant Peach or Matilda or Fantastic Mr. Fox or SEO Trot or Revolting Rhymes or any of those. So we have to give credit for what the BFG did to us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so let's continue on. Number four at our um, top uh, five best, Aaron and I gave it an average score of 6.5 out of 10, but you gave it an average score of 7.4 out of 10. It is James and the Giant Peach. Well, I don't think that should be a surprise to people. You know, the James and the Giant Peach holds a uh, special place in a lot of uh, childhoods for a lot of people. Definitely, probably, uh, you know, uh, watching the Roald Dahl rights perspective as well. But uh, I mean, to me, um, unfortunately, there's one thing that does let it down, and uh, that is the uh, the abundance of Randy Newman songs. Like, you know, yeah. it's just, it's a, uh, why, uh, why? I mean, like, I also, I sometimes need to kind of like, you know, uh, prompting of like reminding me like, uh, like all, all the ones that are in there. So, uh, I mean, that's the life for me, obviously, is the theme song of the, of the movie. But, uh, I mean, like, uh, the ones that, um, are also in there just for, just for the hell of it. Like, uh, uh, I don't understand the, uh, the, the love song about, you know, you know, love just does what it wants to do and things like that. It's just, uh, that's just there just for padding. And, um, but, uh, every, every, that's the only kind of like negative I think I would say about it. I mean, the other negatives I think I would say is like, uh, there are some times where it looks kind of creepy looking and, uh, and things like that. And, uh, also the, uh, th- there's also the, uh, the fact of, um, the, um, um, the, um, the way it kind of like is all kind of put together. I think uh, is another thing, but, uh, I mean, the positives, I mean, like I do like our, our protagonist in this and uh, i don't see a, a problem with him at all and uh, i do like aunt sponge and aunt spiker in in this as well obviously played by some very well-known uh, you know british uh, actresses but uh, i mean uh, yeah i mean i'm sure for a lot of people it uh, does uh, go the right way but uh, for me i don't know it's just it's um okay there are some things that are great about it but there are some really off-putting things about it as well 
Yeah. Now I can understand with the Randy Newman songs. So you have to understand this is fresh out of Toy Story. He was being critically acclaimed for his You Got a Friend in Me. And I think that Disney was like, hey, you know, let's bring Randy Newman here so that we can be able to work on this film. And um, yeah, it's true that the songs are more or less pointless. Like there's, I mean, other than the That's the Life for Me, there's absolutely no reason why they even need to be here. But I understand why is because it was the 90s and Disney was known for including songs into their movies. So sure. But and then there's also the fact that I felt that there were some things that just didn't really add up. Um, but other than that, I think that the movie does work on its own merits. Um, I thought that Paul Terry did a good job playing as James. I thought that... Um, Joanna Lumley and Miriam Margoyles did a great job as Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker. Uh, I like the bug characters. I thought that they did a great job, too. Um, there's a lot of questionable continuity, such as why are there mechanical sharks as opposed to real sharks that that was in the book? And also that scene in which when they go over to the North Pole, then when they got lost and then they're like swimming and trying to get the compass is like, how can how is it that nobody has died from hypothermia? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And then the ending just felt kind of tacked on because um, in the original ending, Ant Sponge and Ant Spiker were supposed to be dead when the peach rolled over to their car and crushed them. And then, uh, you know, James made it into New York City and then he lived happily ever after. But nope, we have to have that final confrontation with Ant Sponge and Ant Spiker. And, you know, James is supposed to say, hey, guess what? I don't need you anymore. I was able to go all the way to New York City on a giant peach. It's like, that just felt unnecessary. I, I don't know why that scene was even there. So, yeah, there's some flaws in this movie. Some very noticeable flaws. But I think the reason why a lot of people really like this movie, not only because they grew up with it and not only because of the charming stop motion effects and the characters, is that it has a lot of heart in it. And I can respect that. So I can see why a lot of people still fondly remember it. My okay. name is James. It's on mm. my driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Yeah. Yeah, Randy okay. Newman. Yeah. His name is James, and he has a peach, and he's up in the air going out to the city. Something like that. Anyway, moving on. Number three in our uh, top five best. Aaron and I gave it an average score of 7.5 out of 10. You guys gave it an average score of 7.8 out of 10. Too much water. It is Matilda. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Matilda, actually, we did a commentary for it. And uh, we actually did like this movie. You know, yes, so it's like, you know, Danny DeVito is a, is, is a riot in this as well. And, uh, you know, just uh, Mara Wilson, obviously, it's one of our favorite performances from uh, from her, her childhood career. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, I think it has been uh, uh, it was uh, a great movie, I think, uh, to, uh, to obviously, you know, go through on the um, on this retrospective. And so um, one thing I really liked about it is just, uh, you know, the um, it's, it's all told under Mara Wilson's kind of like uh, uh, perspective in this. Like, I love the camera angles of like, you know, how big and how scary everything is. And like, here she is kind of like being resilient in uh, in some in some in some circles. And so she has to be, obviously, because she has to kind of raise herself because uh, her parents don't really care all that much about her, really. So, um, you know, it's just and then you see how intelligent she's becoming. And uh, then you see that also, you know, playing into her powers as well. Well, um, the one thing I think I would say that's kind of a bit off-putting is that eventually when she starts realizing her full potential at the end of the movie, uh, in the book, she starts losing her powers. But in this, I mean, she's uh, she just constantly has them. So it's kind of like, oh, wow. I mean, like, uh, is... Uh is Samuel Jackson going to be knocking to uh, put, make her a part of, like, the Avengers or something soon? Or, uh, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's... Um, 
That was a, that was a little bit off-putting, really, but uh, I'm sure. I mean, like, uh, it's the only movie we had so far, so we have no sequels of whether that actually happens or not. So, yeah, that's very true. But there were a lot of changes that were put into this movie compared to the book. But like I said in the commentary and in the discussion of this movie, it worked. Because Matilda was a five-year-old girl and she portrayed herself as really intelligent and kind of like showing it off a little bit too much. While in the movie, she does, she does have her intelligence, but... Um, you know, she also has a sympathetic side of her where she's being yelled at and abused by her parents. And I think that and they were able to um, expand the, the the relationships of Matilda compared to in the book in which we get to see more of her parents. We get to see more of Michael, where Michael was a jerk in the movie. But in the book, he was just a normal kid and he was pretty sequential. He didn't really meet. He didn't really do anything. Um, Miss Honey was a 22 year old teacher who just started in her first year and she was really poor and she was like really sad all the time because she lost her home and all of her money but even though that they do have that in the movie um they are able to um give off uh, a sense that you know miss honey is helping matilda just as much as um you know the other, as well as vice versa in the book it's just matilda's helping miss honey not miss honey helping matilda or they're helping each other out so, and then there's Miss Trunchbull. I mean, Miss Trunchbull is a great, great villain. She's one of the best villains that we've seen in this retrospective. Very intimidating, very scary, hates children, and she's just vile. And Pam Harris's portrayal of her is amazing. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people really love this. And, and it was, and for a while, it was like really popular. I mean, there, there was, you remember the Matilda challenge a few years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, uh, I mean, I was trying to remember what uh, we had to do in that. Like, I do recall there was a Matilda challenge, but uh, to remind us what it was again. Uh, do you remember that scene in which when Matilda's trying out her powers and everything is like moving in the background? So there's like, while the song, um, you, while the song Itty Bitty Pretty Love is playing in the background, there's a lot of things that are moving with the music. Yeah, and what, did they get people to do that? Oh. Yeah, that, that that's exactly what happened, in which, like, you know, while Itty Bitty Pretty One is playing in the background, people are just, like, moving chairs and turning lights on and off and that kind of stuff, and that was essential, and, you know, people are, like, pointing out their fingers and making it move and that kind of stuff. That was the Matilda challenge. It was really popular on, on social media for quite a while. Yeah, so, uh, well... Uh... Actually, given the fact that we can actually do that now on social media, it's, uh, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising me at all that, so, you know, stuff like that started kicking off. Yeah. So, overall, I can see why a lot of people have this in the top three, because it's 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 one that a lot of people always bring up when they say, oh, yeah, that was a really good Roald Dahl adaptation. Yeah, well, it's one of Danny DeVito's most fun performances, and uh, it's a really good Mario Wilson movie, so, yeah, uh, you know, it definitely thumbs up for everyone who uh, voted for it. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right, so um, number two on the top five best. And like I said before, it was really close. It was off by one point. So Aaron and I gave it an average score of 7.5 out of 10. And you guys gave it an average score of 8 out of 10. It is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised by this. I mean, uh, the, the thing that uh, kind of makes us more skeptical about this movie is the fact that Roald Dahl did not like this. 
did not. I, I think that's kind of what's uh, kind of like uh, you know uh, kind of kind of doesn't really uh, you know rub us with this and some of that as well. Like when you really think about it, this is like one of the childhood classics. But then when you really look deep into it, it's actually full of product placements. It's uh, actually uh, you know got a um, you know a Gene Wilder who uh, you know is uh, pl- playing the uh, the best Willy Wonka he can, but unfortunately like uh, it just isn't going to be you know you wonder how hard he's actually trying to try given the fact that Roald Dahl's already kind of like given his uh, his judgment call on like on, on against him already because he wanted someone else to play Willy, Won- Willy Wonka at that time and uh, you know just uh, um, unfortunately like uh, there's the kind of like, this sweetness that uh, kind of like exists within the movie which you know it's kind of like going on the theme of like being you know candy and chocolate and sweat and niceness and things like that but unfortunately um you know that's kind of not what uh, they you know well doll was going for with charlie with charlie and the chocolate factory and so you know some key elements have actually been missed so that's kind of the reason why we're kind of more harder on it than the fans are now the fans the reason why they love it is because pretty much every single child has grown up on it so and uh, also, if you take out, uh, you know, uh, the Roald Dahl uh, aspects of it, you know, it is a really nice childhood movie. It's up there with Wizard of Oz, you know, as uh, one of the one of the all time classics. So, I mean, because you got Charlie, who you can really, um, really root for in this movie, and uh, you know, Gene Wilder does a, a fantastic Willy Wonka, I think, you know, in uh, given given the circumstances, and uh, also all the other characters are actually kind of fun and also kind of bouncy themselves, and uh, as well. So, you know, definitely, you know, uh, when we get to uh, you know Violet when she <laughs> turns into a blueberry, I think you say she's she's quite bouncy in this, but <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, on top of that as well, like uh, you got to feel for some of the actors as well in this, you know, being being classic because this wasn't without scars you know doing this because you know when uh, they went onto the um you know the, the giant like uh, you know uh, car with like which is like powered by like soda and things like that you know all that um foam that they got doused in was actually corrosive so uh, they ended up, some of them ended up having to like you know have like uh, you know uh, be treated on 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 the set for like burns and things like that you know like it was horrible you know and keep in mind like uh, you know uh, what do you call it uh, gene wilder got like a face full of the stuff Exactly. And and let's not forget about the Chocolate River, which apparently stunk for days because they actually added in real chocolate and real cream mixed with water and other stuff in it. And the smell was overwhelming. And I can't, and I feel so, so bad for the kid who actually fell into the stuff. It must have been awful. Who had to fall into the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Even that wasn't an accident. Like, uh, oh, yeah, that's just... Uh, yeah, uh, as well, Gene Wilder had to eat some wax, you know, when he did the whole cup thing, because he was like, he really was trying to get into, like, you know, the make the atmosphere believable that this was, like, you know, a very sweet thing. But, yeah, um, the minute you stop watching that movie, the minute you start seeing how it's made, it's like, Ugh. And then, like, it's even topped off even worse that the uh, the original creator of the story didn't, didn't even end up liking it. You know, so... Yeah, well, but- yeah, and the reason why we didn't get another film adaptation until 19 years later with the witches. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there was uh, keep in mind there was the BFG in 1989. Well, so, I guess that's true, but it was yeah. it was it was not like a nat- nationwide theatrical release. Exactly, but uh, I mean, it, it took a bit of time for um, Roald Dahl to put something back on the screen after basically this. Yeah, we, we so, didn't yeah. Even, we didn't even get Great Glass Elevator, and oh my goodness, that would have been like the most highly anticipated sequel. I probably would imagine if, uh, you know, they decided to do Great Glass Elevator. And they try to do it three times. Like, the first time that they try to do it was with um, the Willy Wonka version. Then they try to do it with the Charlie version. And then there was rumors going around that they wanted to do it for the Tom and Jerry version. But 
No, I guess Great Glass Ele- I guess Great Glass Elevator is like a cursed movie. It's like it'll never get the sequel it deserves. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm sure some people are going to be saying like, "Well, it didn't do too well at box office." It's like, yeah, but you know, everyone owned it on VHS and DVD, and uh, it pretty much gets played in every classroom across the country, like you know, across the world as well. Even you know, so like, uh, you know, it's um, you know, if they decided like, "Oh, hey, we're going to do Great Glass Elevator in the uh, in the spirit of this movie," I think it will garner a reaction. I probably would imagine. Yeah, but the movie didn't come out on VHS until like over 10 years later. And that was when VHS sales were like a big reason on why people would do sequels and stuff like that. I guess the All Dogs Go to Heaven is a good example in which when the movie bombed in the box office because it came out around the same day as The Little Mermaid. But then when it came out on VHS, everybody loved it. And it was on every person's VHS collection. And then they were like, hey. Let's do a sequel. I guess had Willy Wonga and the Chocolate Factory K came out maybe a few years later, we could have seen Great Glass Elevator, but unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. So I think that the reason why people still remember this movie is because it just has this innocence to it. It has this whimsy and charm that a lot of people really gravitate to. The songs are incredibly memorable. I mean, I got a golden ticket. I want it now. Uh, Pure Imagination, the Oompa Loompa song. So, you know, it's a song, you know, these are songs that everybody remembers. Everybody remembers Gene Wilder's performance. Peter Ostrom does a great Charlie. Jack Albertson is great as Grandpa Joe. And all of the kids do a fantastic job as their respected characters. The, the things that kind of hold back this movie is that, yeah, let's be honest, the the um, the presentation, the effects are pretty dated by today's standards, but that's because they were running on a very low budget and they couldn't tighten up everything that they wanted to. They were just trying to do everything that they could under the circumstances, but the way that they pulled it off, they pulled it off amazingly well. And uh, th- there's a reason why this film will still be remembered and not the Tom and Jerry version. So, yeah. So overall, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is still a classic. It's a a classic that many people will still remember, and it still remains in our pop culture. And there's a reason why you see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in toys, action figures, Funko figurines, and many many of the songs are played in commercials. So yeah, this movie will not go away in pop culture anytime soon. Exactly, and I think uh, yeah, it is going to be one of the childhood classics, which is going to be you know played for generations to come. I think I think it's uh, it's going to stand the test of time because you know every single uh, generation is going to grow up with it. So yeah. All right, and finally, number one in our top five best roll doll adaptations, we gave it an average score of nine out of ten, and you gave it an average score of eight point one out of ten. It is fantastic, Mr. Fox. Uh, totally and utterly deserved. This thing is a classic and is an absolute gem for the Roald Dahl retrospective and just uh, just movies in general because, you know, Wes Anderson does such a fantastic uh, job of giving us this, like, this really wonderful atmosphere of just, like, you know, a mixture of calm, a mixture of excitement, a mixture of humor and, uh, the, you know, the things like that. And just it's, uh, it, and also it's just the, uh, the stop motion is just absolutely glorious to look at. And keep this in mind this is done in 4k so like yeah you can see like some 
um, you know, for vaults and things like that. But so they managed to, you know, do it really well and also keep to the frame rate as well. Like the technology in this is astounding. And, uh, you know, the music also as well, like, okay, not an original soundtrack, but, uh, you know, it's uh, still, you know, very, you know, catchy to go with it. You know, Davy Crockett, I think, is a great way to kick it all off. And uh, then you have uh, stuff from, you know, from, from Pete Cocker as well, I think, uh, which I think is... Uh, you know, great to do out of that, and uh, also you've uh, got all the uh, the voice actors going on, and also on top of that as well, this is probably one of the very few movies where Owen Wilson will probably go to around about eighty or ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So like, uh, you know, like it even make, managed to make Owen Wilson look good in this movie. So like, uh, that's <laughs> going to be something to do as well. But I mean, the um, fantastic Mr. Fox. You know, I think is uh, really well voiced by his voice actor, and uh, who goes completely out of my goes completely out of my head. Who who do? Uh, who, George Clooney. George, George Clooney. I don't know. I can't, I'm so ashamed to, to have forgotten that. But, uh, you know, Meryl Streep as well as uh, Mrs. Fox and, uh, you know, just uh, the, all the various other people who, uh, you know, do, do all the, the voices of the animals. They do a fantastic job of this as well. But uh, I think one thing also as well is that uh, the way that it's shot, I mean, like, uh, it knows when to get happy moments. It knows when to get glowing moments. It knows when to get sad moments. It knows when to get dark moments. Like, it's, uh, you know, also the, uh, the the fight scenes between uh, the, you know, the you know, rats and uh, Mr. Fox are just uh, fantastic as well and uh, also brings up you know suspense in uh, you know when they nearly get catched when they get caught and things like that it's just it's uh, um, I could go forever about this movie and uh, also I think we did because we did a commentary about it too but uh, I mean it's um, it's a classic and uh, I think uh, out of all the movies I think that I would uh, tell everybody to start off with first in regards to stop motion animation uh, I mean you either go with Isle of Dogs or you go with Fantastic Mr. Fox it's a great yeah, and as somebody who has seen both of the movies in theaters, I would say Fantastic Mr. Fox is the better film. And there's a reason why. You see, the presentation alone is what sells it. Everything is handcrafted. Everything looks real because they got a lot of raw sources like grass and twigs. And they were able to record everything in real time in the actual locations. Like they went over to a farm, they went outside, they went inside the sewer systems, they went inside of a cave, they went everywhere so they can get the authenticity of the sound. If you own this movie on Blu-ray, I would highly recommend that you check out the behind the scenes footage of how they were able to put all of this together. And this is Wes Anderson's first animated film. He had never done an animated film before this. He was known for doing his quirky... Um, indie films uh, you know he was known for doing stuff such as the royal tenenbaums and moonrise kingdom the um, uh, and all of those films and yeah and and you know the fact that he was able to and he was the one i feel you know next to mel stewart with uh, willy wonka and the chocolate factor he was the one who captured the essence of a roald doll book the best because Everything that you see here, it fits so well. I mean, sure, they were able to change a lot from the source material while adding in some things from Danny, the champion of the world, but it works with the story. And there's just a wit in this that is just so humorous in multiple ways. They have wordplay. They have gags. They have puns. They have everything that makes it hilarious. They also have really sentimental moments, too. They have action moments. Um, the, the protagonists are great. Boggus Bunsen, Bean are great. The music is fantastic. Everything about this movie is the perfect culmination of taking the source material, putting it into a film, and giving everything that you expect from it. Great characters, great atmosphere, great scenery, and just overall a great story. And 
nothing, I mean, other than Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, nothing has really um, represents so well of a Roald Dahl adaptation than Fantastic Mr. Fox. And that is it. That is our top five best and worst of the Roald Dahl adaptations. Uh, we don't know what is going to be coming in for the future, whether it be the Netflix series with Taika Waititi or whether it be the adaptation of Matilda the Musical. But when it does come out, we will be there to talk about it. So my name is Patricia. My name is Aaron. And thank you so much for joining us on this retrospective. Take care and bye-bye for now. See you later.